Let's turn to Ephesians. We'll be going there eventually. This will be, well, you can consider this part two of a Christmas card. The message will be entitled, in fact, The Gospel of Our Salvation. Merry Christmas. Tim, good to see you. You're in my heart. And I know you know. You're in the palm of his hand. All right. This is part nine of the doctrine of the mystery. The mystery is not a mere approach to universal salvation. The mystery requires it. The mystery is first a theological and a Christological doctrine. In fact, the mystery of God is simply called Christ. Colossians 2.1 and 2 says this, in fact, 2.1 to 3, and I've translated most of the verses I'm giving you today. I want you to know how great a struggle I'm enduring for you, Paul wrote. For those in Laodicea, which is incidentally where Ephesians was first addressed, and for all those who have not seen me in person, guess that includes us, that their hearts would be incentivized and united in love and into all the wealth of the full assurance of insight into the knowledge of the mystery of God, Christ, in whom, that's that little word, en as in Ephesians 1.7, Ephesians 1.11, twice in Ephesians 1.13, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Christology, as it's called in theology, the study or the word of Christ, Christology is soteriology. It is the study of salvation. Christ is salvation. And as we've seen on many occasions, the birth prediction of Christ by an angel that he would be born from a woman named Mary went like this, according to Matthew one twenty and 21. But after Joseph had considered privately ending his engagement to Mary, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to receive Mary as your wife. Because what has been begotten in her is by the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son. Our theme lately, a son. God has spoken to us in these last days, definitively, finally, fully, in a son. Hebrews 1.2. She will give birth to a son. And you will call him by the name Jesus. That's addressed to Joseph. You, Joseph, will call him by the name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So consider that, Jesus, for he will save. His name shall be called Jesus, for he will save. The name Jesus is synonymous with salvation. And so if I were to be a theologian this morning, and I usually am on Wednesdays, 
Soteriology is Christology. God has spoken to us in a son. A son conceived in Mary by the Holy Spirit. But a son eternally begotten of the Father. A son begotten for us. Now consider this. Begotten eternally with us in mind. Always in his mind. A begotten son for us. A child, said Isaiah, born to us. A son given to us as the savior from our sins. He will save his people from their sins. That does not refer only to Israel. Or to Jesus' fellow Jews. In Ephesians, the Jewish people in the Apostle Paul as representative, wrote to the Gentiles who were considered unholy pagans by many Jews. And this is what he said in Ephesians 2.1. Again, I've translated this 2.1 to 5. And you, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you conducted yourselves, according to the prevailing fashion of this transient age. What slavery that is. Marching to the beat of the fashion of this transient age. In the way that the ruler of the air commanded you to live. That's how you lived. The very spirit that now dictates the mentality and the moves of the people who disobey God among whom we all once conducted our lives in the cravings of our flesh, doing the intentions of the flesh and of the mind of this spiritual being. And we're angry children, just like all the rest. But God, who is rich in mercy, Ephesians 2.4, that's saving mercy, incidentally, It's the theme of Romans 9 through 11, as we've seen in the teaching of Romans, those three chapters. God, who is rich in mercy, through the great love with which he loved us. And that sums up all of Romans 5 through 8. He loved us in the giving of his son. Made us, while we were dead in these sins, he made us, Paul speaking to the Gentiles and the pagans, as well as Paul and his Jewish friends, all Jews, made us alive together in Christ. By grace you are saved, having been perfectly saved. The tenses have to read that way. By grace you are saved, having been perfectly saved. That is, in the Christ event. It began with the birth of a savior in the city of David. So we're going to go to catechism today, catechism class, Q&A, questions and answers. Question, who then are his people? Those from whom he saves from their sins. Who are the people of Jesus whom he saves from their sins? Answer, not just Jews, but Gentiles too. 
the messianic birth announcement made to shepherds went like this. Luke 2, 1 to 11. Probably the shepherds watching over the flock of slaughter, the lambs that would be slaughtered. And the angel said to these shepherds in the field, don't be afraid, listen up. I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all people. This very day, the Savior, which is Christ the Lord, was born in the city of David. So the riches of God's mercy in Ephesians 2.4 certainly extend to Israel and beyond. In fact, the riches of God's saving mercy extend universally. For as Romans eleven thirty to 32 says, my translation, Romans eleven thirty with a little bit of expansion, as you Gentile Christians once disobeyed as pagan unbelievers, but now have received saving mercy, so they, the hardened part of Israel, whom you Gentile Christians see reflected in your Jewish Christian brethren, also have now disobeyed, disbelieved, or became unfaithful, so that the same saving mercy given to you, they will also receive. For God has shut up all human beings in disobedience and unbelief in order to have mercy on them all. God has mercy only toward one category of people, not believers, unbelievers, not obedient, disobedient. So how could we be saved by our obedience or our faith or our faithfulness if he extends mercy to those in unbelief? God's mercy is saving mercy. You'll notice, and this has been an ongoing secret mission of mine, I'm on a secret mission, a clandestine covert op. And it's to storm the citadel of the human will where the heart of arrogance and the throne of arrogance resides today, now, among people. God's mercy is saving mercy. It saves from the wages of sin. To be saved from sins is to be saved from their wages, which is the end result where they would take us to an unspeakable and absolute death. Some might call it hell. God's saving mercy saves from the wages of sin because Christ put away sin by the offering of himself to God through the eternal spirit. Once and for all at the juncture of the two ages, put Hebrews 9.14 together with 9.26. Do it sometime, really. Think about it. It'll even be more profitable than looking at your phone unless you have to look at your phone to get those verses. In Titus 3, and not while you're driving, please, especially when not when you're driving in front of me. In Titus 3, 4 and 5, my translation, when the kindness, listen carefully, when the kindness 
and philanthropy, that's the passionate love of God for humanity. When the kindness and the philanthropy of God our Savior made its appearance. When did it make its appearance? Well, in Jesus Christ, in him crucified, buried, resurrected, elevated, exalted, glorified, at the right hand of the majesty on high. When the kindness and philanthropy of God, our Savior, made its appearance or appeared, verse 5, he saved us. We've been here before, but notice it. When the philanthropy and kindness of God, our Savior, made an appearance in Christ crucified, first Christ resurrected, first Christ incarnated, then crucified, buried, raised, exalted. That's when God's philanthropy and passionate love for humankind appeared. When that appeared, he saved us. That's how I read it. I have to, I'm, I'm just a simple man. Just like Leonard Skinner says, be a simple man. I read, when the kindness and philanthropy of God, our Savior, made its appearance, he saved us. Well, I thought he saved me when I marched down the aisle. I thought he saved me when I believed that Jesus is the Christ. I thought he saved me when I called upon the name of the Lord. I thought he saved me then. It says here, when God's philanthropy and kindness made an appearance, he saved us. Us. Not on the basis of righteous, righteous works that we had done. How could it be that way? But on the basis of his mercy. So we just played hooky, so let's go back to catechism. When did God our Savior save us? And answer. When the kindness and philanthropy of God our Savior appeared. Appeared, made an appearance. When did the kindness and philanthropy of God appear? Question. Answer. When the word was made flesh and pitched a tent among us and we beheld his glory, said witnesses, witnesses who saw him in the glory of the fullness of grace and truth and covenant fidelity that can only be the glory of the only eternally begotten son of God in the flesh. And especially they beheld that glory when he was lifted up on the cross. When you will have lifted me up, then you will know that I am. I am Yahweh. I am Yahweh who saves. For no man ascended into the heavens, but he who first descended. And the son of man who descended was lifted up like a snake on a pole. So that whoever looks will live. And all will look. Look unto me, all you ends of the earth, and be saved. And John twelve thirty two. if I am lifted up, I will drag or draw, take your pick. Drag or draw, I was dragged. It's my testimony. 
all to myself. He who drew all judgment to himself as the judge draws all humanity to himself, all creation to himself, to embrace them in total salvation. The mystery. I'm not just doing another approach to the mystery here. The mystery of God in Christ requires us to believe this. Ephesians 4, 8 to 10 says the same thing. What about this statement, he ascended, Paul said? Is it not first that he descended to the lower regions, that is, to the earth, and then ascended to the highest place of all, that he might fill up everything with himself? That's called eternal, universal salvation, filling up everything with himself. Question, when were we saved? Answer, in the Christ event that began when Christ our Savior was born in the city of David. That's joyous news for all people. News of great joy. There is no merry Christmas without that Christmas truth. You can say it all day long. You can say that now you're brave that you can say Merry Christmas instead of Happy Holiday. But what's it mean? What does it mean? Without this truth, it doesn't mean too much. It means chestnuts roasting on an open fire, but it doesn't mean none of us will roast on an open fire. Now, this is what it means that we were saved by grace. Saved by grace. This is what it means. Saved by grace. What does it mean to you? What does it mean to me today? The grace by which we were saved is called in 2 Corinthians 8, 9. We quote it every time we do an offering. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who though he was rich, became poor for you. When did he become poor? He became utterly poverty-stricken when he was cut off but not for himself on Calvary's cross. He became poor. He was crucified in weakness. He became poor so that we would become rich with the unsearchable, unfathomable wealth of Christ, as Ephesians 3.8 says. The grace by which we are saved is the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. His gracious act of obedience is meant. His gracious act of obedience to the extent of death by crucifixion. To what was he obedient? His father. And what was his father's will that all humans would be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth? So he obeyed that will of his father to the extent of death because that's what it would take to save all humanity. To the extent of death, Philippians 2.8. Therefore, God has also highly exalted him. Consider Romans 5.15. I love having done Romans and gutted it out because now we take the cream of the crop anytime we want. Our translation, Romans 5.15, says this. However, the free gift is not proportional to the transgression. 
For if by the transgression of the one, Adam, the many died, then how much more have the grace of God and the gift overflowed to enrich the many, that is, with life? By the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ. By the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ. You and I were perfectly saved and are being saved and will still be saved in the ages to the ages to the ages endlessly by the grace of one man, Jesus Christ. Which is the grace of God in one man, Jesus Christ. It overflowed and superbounded even more to the many. That grace is the faithfulness. It's the same thing as the faithfulness of one man, Jesus Christ, or the same as the faith of Jesus Christ. The faithful obedience to the extent of death, which is also the same as saying the blood of Christ, therefore being justified by his blood, all the much more we will be saved from wrath through him and through his life. So here's another question. Back to catechism class. Who are the many? In Romans 5.15. To whom the grace of the one man Jesus Christ overflowed and superabounded. Who are the many? Hoi polloi. That's us. Question. The answer is the many are all of humanity in all of its times, as is clearly stated right down the line in Romans 5, 18 and 19. Some of you have already thought forward that way. Romans 5, 18 to 19 reads like this. So then, as through one sin came condemnation to all people, all people, So through the righteous act of one, Jesus Christ, came the justification of life to all people. That's everyone without exception, diachronically through all time, all of human time. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, says verse 19, many were constituted as sinners, so also through the obedience of the one, the many otherwise known as the all, were constituted as righteous. And why not? It is God's doing that Christ has been made for us righteousness. And so this is what we would call a distich. A distich is like a proverb where there's two lines. The first line is Romans 5.18, where the word all is used. The second line is 5.19, where the many is used. And because of the distich, the many of the second line equals the all of the first line. And the all of the first line equals the many of the second line. The distich then captures that idea that the many equals all. We've already gone through this. Mark 10.45, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In Matthew 20, 28, he says the same thing. He speaks to his disciples and said, don't be like the Gentile rulers. Don't be like the politicians of your time. 
who rule over people and dictate over their subjects. But among you, the last shall be first. And if you're going to be greatest, be the slave of all. That's an authority unheard of. It's the authority of the cross. It's the sovereignty that was on the shoulder of the son who was given to us. And he said in Matthew 20, 28, because the son of man, you know, the one who descended and then ascended, having made redemption for all. The son of man did not come to be ministered to, but rather to minister or serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And as he instituted the Eucharist, what did he say? This is the blood of my, of the covenant. This is my blood of the covenant, which shall be shed for many. And then Timothy comes along, 1 Timothy 2.5. There is one God and one mediator between God and all of humankind, the man Christ Jesus who gave his life as a ransom for all. The many of Matthew 20, 28, Mark 10, 45, Matthew 26, 28, is the all of 1 Timothy 2, 6, and Romans 5, 18, and 1 Corinthians 15, 22, and 2 Corinthians 5, 14. And it's not a coincidence that Paul uses the word all 70 times in Romans. Now, Ephesians 2.8 expands upon 2.5, where it says, by grace you were saved. Ephesians 2.8 says, by grace you were saved through faith. Question. This is catechism. Whose faith? Answer, not ours. It's the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, which is his obedience to the extent of death by crucifixion. It is the meritorious obedience. Remember parts one and two of the doctrine of the mystery? The meritorious obedience of Jesus Christ, which was the subject of our first two hours in the doctrine of the mystery. Now, some will say, and they do say, that what is not of ourselves here is the salvation that we have by our faith. And it's true that salvation is not of ourselves. Salvation is of the Lord. Psalm 3a, ask Jonah in 2.9. It's true then. Salvation is not of ourselves, but uh, neither is the faith. Or faithfulness, as it should be translated, ours. Through which the grace was given. The faithfulness is the obedience of Jesus Christ, the one righteous act, the blood of Christ. Call it by many names. You've been saved by God's grace through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. And not your faithfulness, and not of works either, lest any person should boast. Well, I'd never boast in my works, but would you boast in your faith?
Now, I recalled a couple of things, and I pulled them up from my ancient files here. Romans, the epistle, I think, 93, number 93 and number 27. I pulled up a couple of theologians whose little paragraphs I agree with wholeheartedly, and I've come to this conclusion myself, but it's always good to read someone who says better than what you could say, what you think, what you feel, what you've discovered after 48 years of study. The first is Karl Barth. And he was always attacked by fundies, the fundy preachers that I was under. He was always attacked as someone called neo-Orthodox. And I thought, whoa, he's neo-Orthodox. And I thought, what the hell does that mean? And if he's neo-Orthodox, then maybe he's newly like the Orthodox, like Origen and Gregory Nyssa and Gregory Nazianzus and Evagrius and all those patristics that were called Orthodox. And, ooh, they believed in the apocatastasis, pantone, which is what all the prophets spoke about, all of them, without exception. So I'm thinking, wow, that's a terrible accusation. But Karl Barth wrote this. And people always criticize what they don't understand. That's just a fact. People always malign what they don't understand. Karl Barth wrote this, and this I think, to me, this is the most important thing he ever wrote, even more than his idea on election. This is what he wrote, quote, The man who is isolated over against God is as such rejected by God. But to be this man can only be by the godless man's own choice. In other words, yes, if you're going to isolate yourself against God and be evil on purpose, then God will reject that man that you are. But that man that you are is by your own choice. But guess what? God rejected your choice. That's the point. The witness of the community of God, that's us, those who have been awakened to our salvation through Jesus Christ in the finished work where he cried out, or actually he didn't cry it out at all. He just spoke it enough for John, the beloved disciple, to hear it. He said, to tell us thy, finished, created, done. The witness of the community of God to every individual man, and they used to use man exclusively then. We could say man or woman. It doesn't, it, the gender is notwithstanding here. The witness of the community of God to every individual man consists in this, that this choice of the godless man is void. I love that. I'd love to tell somebody, well, I don't believe that. And I'd love to tell them, well, your choice is void. That doesn't mean anything. Your choice is void. Null and void. That he belongs eternally to Jesus Christ and therefore is not rejected, but elected by God in Jesus Christ. That the rejection which he deserves on account of his perverse choice, speaking of myself here, is born and canceled by Jesus Christ. 
and that he is appointed to eternal life with God on the basis of the righteous divine decision. I love Isaiah 46.10. He declares the end from the beginning. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth means in the end, God will make all things in Christ. And I will do all my will. Well, what about people that will that you don't do that will? Their decision is rendered null and void. It doesn't mean anything at all. It's zero. Now, this is storming a citadel where the human pride resides the most. You talk about where Satan's throne is today. It's right there in the citadel of the pride of the human will. Now, he goes on to say, the rejection which he deserves on account of his perverse choice is born and canceled by Jesus Christ and that he is appointed to eternal life with God on the basis of the righteous divine decision. The promise of his election determines that as a member of the community, he himself shall be a bearer of its witness to the whole world. And the revelation of his rejection can only determine him to believe in Jesus Christ as the one by whom it has been born and canceled. In other words, everyone will come to the faith, the unity of the faith in Jesus Christ. Ephesians 4.13, everyone will come to, how can every knee bow, every tongue acknowledge that Jesus is Yahweh or Yahweh is Jesus to the glory of God the Father and every tongue sing praise to me, Romans 14, 11, quoting Isaiah 45, 23, if they haven't already come to the faith. So even if you believe that you're saved by believing, then everyone will have come to believing. Oh, but the funding, but you can't have, that can't happen after death. You know, God's got no control after that. Really? Then what do you mean Jesus was risen from the dead? I think God's got some control over death. I think Jesus appeared to John and said, hey, John, I was dead. I saw a man in a store last year, and he, I said, how are you? And he said, I'm pretty good now, but I was dead. And I said, what? And he said, yeah, I was dead for eight minutes. And they finally revived me. And I'm thinking, did you see anything? Do you? He said, no, I didn't. I said, well, then maybe you weren't all the way dead. But I said, you were, ra- you were alive now because God has a plan for your life. The Lord has a purpose for you. And he said, well, I hope I realize that. And I said, that's true. But Jesus was really dead. He was not only dead, he was dead with the wages of sin dead. But now I'm alive, not only alive, I'm well, look at me, I'm very healthy, I'm glowing with health. As God said, I will give to him, the ruler of all the nations, not only life, but health, I'll give him good health. And I hold the keys of Thanatos, death, I got control over death. Don't give me some false, phony heretical, stupid, blasphemous gospel that God doesn't have control after a man dies or after a woman dies or after a child or a baby dies. Uh, That goes back to the horror doctrine of limbo. 
babies in hell because they didn't get baptized. What? There are certain people that believe certain things and associations that are rooted in certain doctrines. I'm thinking, how can you stay there? How can you stay in a place which is a citadel of lies and a false gospel? How can you do it? Well, it's been a family tradition. And, you know, the guy that makes all the rulings has a really high-pointed hat. Oh, then all, by all means, stay there. Now then. Consider Moltmann. This is another one that came up in my mind. I have this photograph, not perfect photograph memory, but I see things and remember where I put them in the notes and stuff, so I pulled it up. Moltmann's observation. He says, in The Coming of God, he said, this really brings the question, universalism or a double outcome of judgment? He tackled that in The Coming of God. It's worth buying the book just to get that little thing going. He said, this really brings the question, universalism or double outcome of judgment, down to the relationship between divine and human decision. The doctrine of universal salvation, says Moltmann, is the expression of a boundless confidence in God. Why do I believe in universal salvation? Because I have a boundless confidence in God. That's why. And I have no confidence in the flesh. Mine, yours, or anybody else's. Billy Graham's, Franklin Graham's, or any other of the Graham's, or even a Graham cracker. I have no. And I have the highest regard and respect for them. The TV evangelist, the Monsignor, I have high regard for evangelists and theologians. But I have no confidence in their flesh. None. Zero. You've heard of zero tolerance? Zero confidence. We are the true circumcision, said Paul, who worship God in the spirit, who rejoice or boast in Christ Jesus, and who have Zero confidence in the flesh. So I love what Moltmann said. The doctrine of universal salvation is the expression of a boundless confidence in God. What's wrong with that? I'm sorry for my boundless confidence in God. I'm sorry I didn't trust you more and your decision to believe. I'm being sarcastic. As Charlie Brown said, Don't you know sarcasm when you hear it? The doctrine of universal salvation is the expression of a boundless confidence in God. What God wants to do, he can do and will do. And I would add, Jürgen and has done. If he wants all human beings to be helped, he will ultimately help all human beings, he goes on to say. The doctrine of the double outcome of judgment is the expression of a tremendous self Confidence. Here we go. This is called the throne of iniquity. 
This is the mystery of godliness, of ungodliness. This is the mystery of evil. He goes, he says, the doctrine of the double outcome of judgment is the expression of a tremendous self-confidence on the part of human beings. If the decision, faith or disbelief, has eternal significance, then eternal destiny, salvation or damnation, lies in the hands of human beings. That's right. What will happen to people in eternity really depends on their own behavior, he said, according to this idea. God's function is reduced to the offer of salvation in the gospel. And to establishing acceptance or rejection at the judgment. So Christ becomes a person's savior only when the person has accepted him. Kind of goes against Ephesians 1.6. You've been accepted in the beloved. To the praise of the glory of God's grace. But he goes on to say. So it is the acceptance in faith. Which makes Christ the savior of the man or the woman. But if this is so. Do people not really save or damn themselves? Question mark. The doctrine of the double outcome of judgment. Is a relatively modern doctrine. Did you know that? It is. Compared with the doctrine of universal salvation. That's a much older doctrine than double outcome of judgment. Double election. Double predestination. That's all new stuff. In fact, I would say that's a nuance of Satan. Came into play. And then he says, I love this because this is where the castle is stormed. It fits the modern age. Double predestination does. It fits the modern age. In which human, believe, human beings believe that they are the measure of all things. And the center of the world. And here's one of the most gentle men I've ever heard preach or see, seen talk or read about. Jürgen Moltmann. And then he says, and that therefore everything depends on their decision. I love that. It fits the modern age in which human beings believe that they are the measure of all things. And may I say, too, that's why they're so offended at almost everything you say. It's better to let your words on earth not only be few, but almost be none. Because if you say a word in a wrong way or with the wrong accent or the wrong nuance, you might be offending someone who is offended because they're so important to themselves that you've offended them. I like, I, I'm still old fashioned. I like where it says, blessed are those who love your word. Nothing shall offend them. Now then. So I would say that the faithfulness through which we were saved by grace is not of ourselves either. 
If it were, then grace would be no more grace, and we wouldn't be saved by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, the man Christ Jesus, the only mediator between God and humankind who gave his life as a ransom for all, 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6, in obedience to the Father's will and intention that all human beings be saved in 1 Timothy 2, 3 and 4. Paul isn't kidding. I should just leave it there. Paul isn't kidding. When he writes in Titus 2.11, a very simple phrase, soterios passin anthropos. He said, the grace of God has appeared. Colon would be in the English. There's no colon in the Greek, but in the English we would have colon. Here's the grace of God. Has appeared. It has appeared. And what does it say? It says, soterios passin Anthropoi, salvation of all human beings. Salvation of all human beings. What else does it say? Nothing. The grace of God has made an appearance. When? In Christ. Why should everybody be happy about that? Because his appearance means salvation for all human beings. Now, here it is. Here, here it comes. I have one more question in our catechism. Doesn't this grace teach us to have a license to sin? With impunity. Answer. No. In fact, according to the very next verse, Titus 2.12 through 14. According to the next verses, Titus 2, 12 to 14, which I took the trouble of translating because we had another Wednesday off, which drives me crazy. We got another one off this week because of some holiday. Titus 2, 12 to 14. Teaching us to deny impiety. The grace of God has appeared. Salvation for all. Teaching us. Training us. To deny impiety. And this worldly cravings. And to live soberly and justly. And reverently. In this present transient age. What does this salvation for all humankind. This grace Teach us to do. It teaches us to have a license to sin. Sure it does, you idiot. No, it says it teaches us to deny impiety, all impiety, irreverence, and this worldly cravings, and to live soberly. And that does mean minus addictions. Soberly and justly, fairly in our dealings with mankind. And reverently in this present transient age while anticipating the blessed hope and the splendid epiphany of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. God is great. Yes, he is. And his name is Jesus Christ. And he saved the Muslims and he saved the Buddhists and he saved the atheists and he saved the person who is so self-important as to say, well, I don't believe. Your decision is void. Zero. Does this offend you? Yes, and I'm suing. (laughs) Well, of course you are. 
Or as Sean Connery would say, well, of course you are, dear. (laughs) And then it goes on to say, the epiphany of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us, who gave himself for us in order to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people who would be his own people eager for noble accomplishments. So in closing, Jesus Christ giving himself for us presupposes the great love which he loved us with and gave himself for us, Galatians 2.20. And this chimes with Ephesians 2.8-10, which says this, For by uncontingent grace you are perfectly saved through a faithfulness not your own. This salvation its grace and the faithfulness through which the grace was given is the gift of God and not of works so that no one will boast, meaning either in their works or their faith or their faithfulness is what he's saying. For we are his work. We are his work. We're the job he finished. Created in Christ Jesus for benevolent works, which God prepared in advance in order that we would conduct our lives in them. They're already there. We walk right into them. So you survey the day and you go, well, what did I do today? And of course, you might have done a few things imperfectly. And then the spirit may say to you, you did some benevolent works today. Well, when did I do that? Well, when you did that for that person and this for that person and smiled kindly to a person that's been received nothing but the bitterness of self-important people in line to buy Christmas gifts. (laughs) Now then, you say, how dare you do that? I dare because I dare. We are self-important, our decisions count for eternity. Wrong. All right. Our salvation is a matter of the uncontingent grace. Uncontingent means there's no contingency to be met, no condition to be met of the Lord Jesus Christ, which comes from the riches of God's mercy and the unconditional love of God, who so loved the world of humankind that he gave his only eternally begotten son to them. A son shall be born to us, a child born for us, to us. For as the scripture says, you see, usually a child is born to the parents. The parents say a child was born to us. This child was born to all of us. And born for us. In fact, he was eternally begotten for us. He was for us in his eternal begetting. His for us isn't just something he decided to do. Oh, I'm for them. I think I'll be for those people. His very essence is for us. We'll be getting to that in DLT next time. Maybe. Matthew 1, she will give birth to a son. You see, this is the son whom God loved the world so much that he gave his only eternally begotten son to us. For as the scripture says in Isaiah 9, 6, because a child is begotten for us, a son, Huios, is given to us. Matthew 1, 21, she will give birth to a son 
same word. And you will call him by the name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And Hebrews 1, 2 to 3, during these last days, God has spoken finally and completely in the Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he created the universe, who exists absolutely as the effulgence of the Shekinah glory, the exact representation of God, the Father's substance, who upholds the universe and carries everything that happens in it through the course of all time toward a redemptive objective, who has made purification for sins as both priest and offering, and who has sat down in the highest height of heaven at the right hand of the eternal majesty. You want to see where he is now? That's where he is. Yeah, that's son. So Merry Christmas. The overture of Ephesians, which we've been considering from 1, 3 to 11, continues oddly enough in verse 12. Let's close with this. It, it closes with two themes. One, the salvation that the angel announced would come with Christ for all people. And secondly, the inheritance that we found in Titus 2.14. And 2.11, salvation, 2.14, inheritance. So my translation of one twelve of Ephesians, closing off the overture, so that we would exist to the praise of his glory, who were the first to hope in the Christ. Paul speaking as a Jew, we, Jews were first to hope in him to the Jew first and also to the Greek. But Gentiles also, according to Isaiah 11.10, we'll be getting to that. Verse 13, in whom you. he First he says we, speaking as a Jew. Then he says you, speaking to the Gentiles. In whom you Gentiles also heard the word of truth. Wait a minute. In him, in whom, ten times it's used in Ephesians 1, 3 to 14. In whom, wait a minute. In him, they heard the word of their salvation. What? Yes, they were in him already. In him, somebody came along. We don't know who it was, and it doesn't matter. Paul says it doesn't matter who preached to you. Fact is, Christ saved you. And so, somebody came along and woke them up to the fact that they were saved in the Christ event. And that they were already in him. So in whom, it says it right here in verse 13, in whom you, you Gentiles, pagans, also heard the word of truth. You were in Christ, you didn't know it, you heard the word of truth, which is what? The good news of your salvation, namely the good news of your salvation. You heard the word of truth, the good news of your salvation, that you are already in Christ because in Christ all died, and when he rose, all came alive so that all are in Christ. So in Christ, that you didn't even know you were in, you heard the word of truth that announced the gospel of your salvation. I know this has to dawn on you. In whom, it says, you also believed, having been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. It doesn't say you believed and then God rewarded you with the seal of the Spirit. No, it says you believed having been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. You don't even believe without the Holy Spirit awakening the faith in you. And then it goes on to say in verse 4, who is the down payment of our inheritance, the Holy Spirit himself. 
until we come into the full possession of it to the praise of his glory. Goes all the way back to one three. Praised be the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So please notice that these Gentiles heard the word of truth, the gospel of their salvation, our salvation too, as they were in Christ. It says, in whom you Gentiles also heard the word of truth, namely the good news of your salvation. They were already in Christ because of the Christ event. As all are in Christ and as all will be made alive in Christ, in him they and we heard the word of truth, the good news of their and our salvation. A salvation that had already occurred when Jesus said, to tell us die. These pagans, we pagans, were already in Christ. In him they heard the word of truth through a messenger, a missionary. It doesn't matter who. It wasn't Paul. They heard the announcement that they were saved. They didn't hear and believe in order to be saved. They heard and they also believed in Jesus Christ who had saved them and everybody else. The gospel is the power of salvation to everyone who believes. To Jews first and also to non-Jews. That does not mean that you have to believe it to be saved. It simply means that when you believe it, you begin to perceive the gospel as it really is, the power of salvation. In that sense, you begin to experience salvation rather than perishing, which means marching to the beat of the angry spirit so that you can be an angry bird, so that you can live in anger, wrath, and malice, which is the spirit of our present time. Anger, wrath, Malice is the spirit of our age. It is the spirit that dominates the majority of humanity in the United States of America, in Europe, at least in Western culture. It's marching to the beat, and they call it individuality. They call it nonconformity. And it's perfect conformity to the prince of the power of the air who marches, who sets the drum beat, and they march right to it. Time to get angry. Time to get stressful. Time to get self-important. Okay, okay, okay. This gospel frees you from all that stuff. The anger of man doesn't accomplish the righteousness of God. It always backfires on the poor, angry man. All right, I know I'm wandering, so let me finish. Have you heard the word of truth? Have you? The word of truth is the gospel of your salvation in Jesus who saves his people from his sins. Are you woke to this? Have you woke? Oh, I'm woke, all right. You're woke to nothing unless you've been woke to the salvation that's in Christ Jesus for all humankind. You haven't even woke up yet. You're still dreaming and sleepwalking through life while you call yourself woke. If you ain't woke to this, you ain't woke. So wake up, you sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. And Merry Christmas. Amen. You're dismissed.